All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now in this episode, I chat with legendary game designer, programmer, and developer, John Romero, about the early years of programming, D&D, heavy metal, the rise of id software, doom, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, if you're interested in watching a video of this interview, you can find us on YouTube via the link in the description or by searching Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time, John, just so we have a platform to leap from. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Definitely fort builder. I did pretty much anything that I could do, anything that was fun and like interesting. Playing with the Rector set, trying to learn electronics, drawing, tons of drawing, just running around back in the 70s, just running around and down by the creek and catching frogs and just all you know basic stuff where about also in the desert i grew up also in tucson in the desert so there was a lot of you know grabbing lizards and rabbits and all kinds of stuff out there staying away from snakes and spiders and scorpions yeah it was pretty great well you mentioned you were trying to you know teach yourself electronics and tinker around was your father or your mother were they tinkerers as well my stepfather was was in electronics, so he was pretty good. That was his that was his job. He was great with that. My dad was totally um, into cars and knew how to fix engine, you know, fix car engines, just fix anything really on the car. So I got to learn a bunch there too. So what about when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on? What pops into your mind? Well, horror movies and science fiction, <laughs> definitely. In the Bay Area, there was a there was a show called Bob Wilkins Creature Features, and that happened on, I think, Fridays and Saturdays around 11 p.m., and they would show, uh, you know, stuff from the 70s. That was mainly when I was watching it, but, it was, <laughs> but they also showed stuff from the 50s and 60s, so I got to see a lot of black and white sci-fi, you know, the day the earth stood still and the day of the Triffids and, you know, a bunch of, bunch of really cool sci-fi stuff. I watched a ton of... Um, Godzilla movies, you know, Gamera and Ghidra and Rodan and all that. So I was really into sci-fi and really into horror. So I saw a lot of really good horror stuff, too. Were you a famous Monsters of Filmland kid? Was that your era? Yeah. Mm, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. absolutely, yeah. So you were doing the uh, the monster models. <laughs> well, I was, I was reading the magazine. I never okay. actually made the models, but <laughs> I was into that. Uh, I was into that mag, Famous Monsters in um, Fangoria. Do you recall the very first film that you saw in theaters? That's usually formative. Theaters. That would be the Buena Vista Theater in Tucson. I saw a movie. What was it? It was my, with my grandma and my brother. I th- it was a. I think it was the. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the the. Um, there was a there was a uh, a Disney show with Don Knotts in it. They were called the uh, the Apple Something Gang. Oh yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking <laughs> Do you about. Remember huh? that? Yeah, yeah you I can't that. remember. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah, I definitely know so what you're talking I, about. That the funny thing is that was the first movie I saw in the theater. But before that, it was all drive-ins. We went to the drive-in all the time, so I saw like 
so much, so many movies in the drive-in, like lots of Sinbad movies. Yeah. Um, like Eye of the Tiger and, and Seventh Voyage and Fox and the Hound and Freebie and the Bean, if you remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> Just so many movies at the drive-in because we had a truck, basically. The truck would have a um, a big ice chest in it with full of drinks and everything. And, and the truck was really big, so my parents would have their you know, fold-out chairs in the back and there's you know sleeping bags and blankets for my brother and i to just lay back there with the tailgate down you know and it's up at an angle where you can lay where it's angled up you know like on on that little bump and they'd have the speaker you know hanging on the side of the inside of the truck and the back basically lived at the uh the (laughs) drive-in god i mean i love those uh those Sinbad movies growing up. Anything Ray Harryhausen, Clash of the Titans. Yeah. Yeah. Or or um, Jason the Argonauts. Yeah. yeah. Right with you, um, man. Right with you. The most common answer I get when I ask folks their first film is uh, either Bambi <laughs> or it's The Exorcist. Wow. It's a weird contrast. <laughs> That's funny. I saw Bambi at the drive-in. The earliest movie, though, God, you know, it, it was it was pretty early, like, that I would remember, you know, something that I would remember. Um, yeah. Probably from 1971, something like that. French Connection or something. It was a while back. <laughs> so do you remember? Do you remember the uh, the Star Wars uh, rage? Then? Oh man, I was there. I saw. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars. The funny thing is, Star Wars. I didn't want to see it at the very beginning because I thought looking at the posters, and I was not used to looking at movie posters. It looked like so a guy with a sword standing on a rock, like. Why would I want to see a movie about that? I'll just watch Conan. You know, and then every, yeah, <laughs> and then everybody at school loved it, and you know, basically said I have to go see it. So I went. Uh, my my parents took took my brother and I. I was nine at the time. I was just on the edge of my seat the whole time. You know, bouncing on that seat. I saw it later in the year because the movie was the movie was in theaters for a year the biggest thing in the world it was so massive you know there was lines of people around the around the block and it's like there's a reason why it was in the theaters for a year it was just massive that's that's unheard of these days i don't i can't think of yeah that yeah nobody's this has been nothing like it so uh, john were there any what records were spinning around the house like what music did you grow up on well actually there was a lot of um a lot of mexican music there was a lot of mariachi cobre and um just a ton of uh lots of Mac- mexican music but there was also um everything that was like top 40 at the time so we listened to low rider you know like pretty much everything in the 70s war my dad had a tape deck you know it was in the in the days where tape decks were they were trying to figure out what's a good way of controlling a tape deck and his tape deck had like a channel changing rotating thing to go play and rewind and everything it's really weird <laughs> i know it was instead of a button right everyone's used to pressing a button to play and rewind and all that and he had this little green one it was it was 70s green he used to put you know just lots of tapes in there there was for sure the group war was one of his one, one of his favorites but we heard every single thing it you know if you know the 70s i heard all of it there was not anything in the 70s I had not heard. It was every single thing. Great time so, to grow up yeah, music-wise. It was. It was. The 70s was the best. You know, the best. The 80s were incredible. Just both of those decades were. Was, music was, was really different. You know, it was different. The singer-songwriter era of the 70s and then the 80s was just incredible as well. So, But music was always playing. You know, it was always music going on in the car, mm-hmm. in the house, everywhere. So when you seep into the 80s and closer to the 90s, did you dip into the metal scene at all? Yeah, I was all about metal. <laughs> <laughs> like when I, when I, the funny thing is like, I didn't feel like I had a musical, um, I didn't feel like I cared about music so much until I got to England. So, and that was in 1983, the beginning of 83. So I, before that point, I listened to everything that was on the radio, you know, early you know, from 80, obviously the 70s stuff, 80 and 81 and 82, listened to Top 40, Casey Kasem every weekend, you know, like, <laughs> just like everybody else. And then in 83, when I got, when I got to England, I, at the bus stop, there were, there was, um, these two, two metalhead kids and they asked me if I had ever heard of Black Sabbath or Judas Priest or any of these groups. And I'm like, no. And they're like, 
you got to come over to my house. <laughs> house yeah, <laughs> go to their house after school. They got, you know, everyone had vinyl at the time, so they were just playing just the best, right? It's all the earliest stuff from Black Sabbath and, and Judas Priest, and it was just like, wow, amazing. And, uh, and then our next-door neighbor, turns out, was a huge 70s guy, and so he had a ton of Led Zeppelin, like he had pretty much everything. And so I used to get, you know, albums from him from, uh, from 70s groups, for the 70s groups, but really it was just getting all of it. And then, and then when I got into it, then it's like over in England, there was a magazine called Kerrang, which was really huge. It was all about all the latest metal stuff. So I'm like, I'm reading these Kerrang magazines where like, new group, Queensryche, blah, 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 blah. It's like new group, you know, just Exodus and all these different, groups and listening to all their music and getting into accept and rat and motley crew and you name it you know speaking my language yeah i listened to every (laughs) single 80s metal group really liked i i I was a fan of most most of them like i have every winger album you know like i also really got into guitar so red beach obviously is one of my favorites docking with george lynch everybody even even when it got to 89 90 that was like the late the latest years when like skid row and bullet boys and you know firehouse and groups like that came out i was still a huge fan of those groups as well everything like i remember you know like 85 was such a huge year when um theater pain came out and uh you know rats invasion of your privacy came out at the same time and those were just for me really huge albums like you know almost every song was just amazing and i went to la um in 86 yeah and i went to work but where they played this 80s metal station that was in la that was just a it was just metal all day long and this is like except on the radio you're hearing except yeah poison you name it like they're just on the radio and it was just amazing that's awesome man i'm actually recording with jeff tate coming up soon queen's right jeff tate so i'm very wow. excited about that we're in He's in Ireland as well. He is. Um, so he's yeah. He sings. He sings down in Cork. I think at a at a at a pub. He just he performs there regularly. I actually got to meet him um, when they were doing the Promised Land tour. Just id software. Us guys were totally into metal, and Queensrÿche was a really huge influence during Doom. And so we got to go meet them before they even did you know started the concert. Wow. But yeah, he he's in he's in Cork because I think a couple of his daughters married Irish guys. Um, so he comes to visit and goes and sings in pubs. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, what was the catalyst for you moving to England? My stepfather was uh, in, he had retired from a 20-year career in the Air Force. And he also, he was an electronics whiz and was into basically recording systems because the obviously the Air Force does a lot of reconnaissance for the United States of Russia. and uh, And so when he tired he went directly into he went directly to work as a defense contractor for kodak so they you know so he basically kept on doing what he was doing but as a contractor and it was the cold war it was like the height of the cold war that was big you know like 83 and so he got stationed from california where we were living to england because it was much closer to russia and that's where the spy planes were taken off, the U-2 and the SR-71. Those spy programs were, were launching from the Air Force that we got stationed at, or at the base that we got stationed at, which was RAF Alkenbury. So we moved there to be closer to Russia. So when those planes needed to be needed to land and mm-hmm. get their data off as fast as possible, he could get there quick because he was there in, in the U.K., was that a culture? Do you remember that being a culture shock for you, going from California to England? It wasn't really that big of a culture shock because I went to school on base, which is all American. You were living in, you know, in a, in a town, not not in the base. We're living in a town, which was different than California, but not really too different. It's like houses and parks and sidewalks and cars, right? It's like all <laughs> basically the same thing. They're on the other side of the road, though. Different people, different everything in the store, but you know that was that was really cool. Um, and then go to base, and when you go to the store, it's all the same American stuff. Everybody is American on base, and you go into an American school, so it's like you might as well be in the U.S., you know? This is something I like to ask everyone just because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? What scared me? I guess the dark. Like, if I was outside, and this is something that my friend and I would do. We would actually go out and go somewhere where there was, you know, like, it was 
midnight or one in the morning, there's a tunnel, there's no light in it. And we would like have no light on, no lights, no flashlights, and just see if we could get through the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, also just like violence, you know, like any kind of violence, obviously being afraid of that just happening randomly, just because that could happen. You know, there's like around people who fight a lot and drink. And, (laughs) you know, so that's uh, the real, real fear versus the fake fear of like, you know, being in a tunnel that's dark. <laughs> right, right. So were you a D&D player growing up? Definitely, yeah. Like in uh, 70, um, I'd say I started in 78. It came out in 74, but in 78 is when it kind of got to our school. And it was, yeah, it was amazing, you know, D&D. And it was very quick to move from D&D to Gamma World, Boot Hill, and all the other variants that they that, that they came out with, you know, at that time. But it was mostly D and D. But yeah, it was just really great to have something that impactful come out when you're a kid, and you can understand it and use it to start making games. You know, right? What is your earliest experience with games? You know, outside of D and D, of course. When do you start? You know, playing with systems and such. Well, programming would be in '79, but before that point, it's just you know board games, card games checkers chess you know the basic stuff arcades you know uh which were to me the the coolest newest thing was that you can control what's on a tv screen because until that point nobody could control what was on the tv you just turn it on and watch it so pong when it first came out you know was like wow something on the tv that you can actually you know play and then the arcades with the electromechanical games and then the very earliest video games you know and and it's funny because i guess i was yeah i was there for all of the weird transition type games like the big atari speedway game i think it was that was on that big huge screen and was angled to the left you know projected you know on a huge screen um and all the rolling drum electromechanical games like dune buggy and stuff just a lot of that transitional stuff and i played a ton of pinball and then the arcades started filling up with these video games and that's like you know space invaders and galaxian you know asteroids those games those early games black and white um xd had a lot of those games out back then that was where it got really cool you know like Mm. i really liked games where like say cheyenne you know like you got a gun and you're like aiming into the cabinet you know it's like this mounted gun thing and just like it's it was really neat to see all the experimentation with like physical things like wheels that you could hold on to and you know radar scope you know holding on to a periscope kind of thing and battle zone with the tank controls just all the really cool inventive ways of controlling games back in those early days was really really fun so when you get your first pc was it mine was it a mind-blowing experience to you (laughs) well it was it yeah kind of like when i saw a computer for the first time that was in 79 and that was at a um at a college in a computer lab so i went to the college at the computer lab saw this gigantic you know computer in one room and then in the other room, there were just a few students, but a ton of these terminals that had keyboards and monitors. And that was the first time that I saw a computer. And I started teaching myself how to code in that computer lab. And basically, I would go around town to like Radio Shacks because they had TRS 80s. I would go to other stores that had like Atari 800s. And because uh, those were like the earliest computers that were out at that time, you know, because the Commodore came out in 82. So 79, 80, 81. I'm going to every store around to just try and spend time typing in basic code to just see it run, experiment with it, and just learn more. And then in 82, in April of 82, then my my parents get this Apple II Plus computer. And I already had used the Apple II Plus, which is the reason why we got it. The, the, um, the college actually opened up an Apple II Plus room, and that's like, for me, that was huge. It's like, forget sharing that big machine. You get your own machine in there. <laughs> And it's color, and it's got graphics and sound, and like, oh my god! So um, that was huge. And then they got the same kind of computer at home, and then I was done going outside. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel that. <laughs> so beyond the actual design work, John, what about the uh, storytelling and world building aspect side of things? Were you always interested in that side as well? 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny because all the games I started out, all the really early games when I was making them, always had to revolve around some kind of little, really short story, you know, because I made a lot of little games, and so they had to have pretty small stories. It was something that I kind of got used to doing, was uh, just coming up with these little stories and then seeing if I could make them uh, happen on the screen in some way, you know, it's kind of like being, you know, when I was living in Tucson in the desert and I'm making fun out of nothing, you know, just like I got nothing to play with, but there's this huge desert that is this awesome environment that has a lot of characters, you know, a lot of stuff in it and it becomes a big character, you know, so kind of stories for me came out of the environment. So when I'm starting to, um, you know, I, in, in my parents, you know, my dad always telling stories about everything, you know, story was just part of this tradition that the, the our family had of, of telling these stories about everything so i got i guess i kind of got used to telling stories but i was going to do it through a game mm, and yeah. uh and you know so then i would come up with a story and then i'm trying to make that story happen in in the stories were always really small because they needed to be these small games i could like start and finish quickly and learn something and then move on to the next one and if i had a bigger idea i'd spend more time on it but typically it was just like a really simple idea like mike the explorer like indiana jones is in pyramid and he's trying to take you know find diamonds and avoid the cobras and get through all the chambers in this giant pyramid and that's like that's it that's the story and that game turned out to be 150 levels that i made in a game called uh, pyramids of egypt <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> It'd be something really small like that, a really small idea that you could basically one sentence. And it would take a while just to make a game that could do that. But it was cool because it started with a story all the time. Did you ever have any desire or currently to explore some of those stories fiction-wise? Or did you ever write short stories or anything like that? Well, yeah, but only in a real creative writing sense with a friend, Christian Devine, who, who is a writer. He and I used to draw comics together we do as much creative stuff as possible and one of the things we did was we'd write stories together where he would write a paragraph and then i follow the paragraph and sometimes it's 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 also just really funny where he'll create a character in the next paragraph i'm basically trying to kill the character <laughs> and then he's resurrecting the character or or keeping the character out of harm's way in the in the third paragraph and then the i like paragraph, that i'm trying to you know, I'm that's cool. That way of like destroying the character, <laughs> but it's supposed to sound like it's the same person. You know, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. So, in your bio, it says that your first game was a Crazy Climber clone, but it was never published. Was there a story there? Well, I love the game Crazy Climber in the arcade. It was just such a really inventive game. It was kind of difficult to control. You know, you had these two controls to move your arm up, but it, like the, the arm movement was very smooth, you know, it wasn't exact. And so you had to be really good at how far up you would put your hand before you move the other hand, because as soon as you move the other one, it kind of grabs, the opposite hand grabs. It was a really fun game that I really loved playing. So one of the earliest things I wanted to make on the computer was, can I make a crazy climber clone? kind of thing, you know, low resolution graphics and everything, you know, that was one of my earliest games. <laughs> and and so I, I was programming it the wrong way because I didn't know enough about programming. And my friend Rob came over and he saw how I was doing it. And he's like, why aren't you using any variables? You don't have any variables in here. Like you can, this game will just be massive if you don't, if you're doing it this way. I'm like, what are you talking about variables? And so he tells me about what variables are. I'm like, wow, okay. So then I started to use variables to write the Crazy Climber game. And then I think I somehow accidentally deleted it off my disk. And at that time, I didn't know how to undelete yet. So I just, like, lost it. After that game, I have every game that I ever wrote on the Apple II still running on PC and emulator. I was going to ask you, you know, clearly you have the power to publish this game now. Is you ever going to bring the Crazy Climber clone out? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, you know, it's one of those learning the projects, you know. Like, I wrote so many small games that were all about learning something on the computer. And I did submit those to try and get published. And they were rejected by everything that I sent them to because they were just my learning programs. <laughs> So they weren't that good. I had to figure out what is the formula for like why for getting them to publish my stuff. Number mm -hmm. one is it needs to be fun, and it can't be too long of a listing. And actually, 
needed to be a combination of assembly language and basic to actually be picked up pretty quickly. And so I figured that formula out. And then basically everything I wrote after that point was picked up by whatever, anybody, different magazines. I got better at programming and making games, but also uh, keeping them really small was important. And, uh, and so I started to sell a lot of my stuff after I did that. You mentioned that first game that you did, the Crazy Climber one we were talking about, that you were doing it the wrong way and you needed to use variables. Uh, can yeah. you explain to us laymans that don't code what that means? <laughs> if you can. <laughs> yeah, vari- a variable is like a symbol that stands for a number or something else. So if you say X equals 10, this is like basic algebra type right, stuff. Right, right, yeah. X, X equals 10. X, e- X equals X plus 5. That means X is 15 now. X equals X plus 5 again. Now it's 20. So it's just having a character stand for a number. And to do then, so if you have a character on the screen, it's like in Crazy Climber, you have the character at, you know, an X coordinate on the screen because the screen has a bunch of dots on it and those dots are numbered. And so if, if 20 is across the screen and, you know, in the, of a, if you have a 40 pixel screen wide, then 20 is going to be in the middle. So if X equals 20, your character is in the middle. And then Y equals, say, 20 as well, uh, or, or 40, you're at the bottom. And if you're going to climb, you're going to have Y going up. Y equals Y minus 1 or 2 or whatever. Then Y is going up. And so your little character will go up the screen. If you don't use variables, then you're hard code. You're making code that is made for just a specific location on the screen. And if you move, you got to run to another piece of code that puts it at a different location on the screen. And then your program is gigantic. Instead of gotcha. doing a little bit of simple math, you know, you don't need to do that anymore. Makes sense. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you consider to be your entry point into the gaming industry? What was the big break that got you going? Let's see. I I was working at Burger King at the end of 86 and through, you know, maybe about halfway through 87. And I needed, I needed to make money. And... I was making $3.10 an hour at that time. Yeah, that's really like nothing. <laughs> but uh, the funny thing is I still have every single one of those um, those payslips from, from Burger King. <laughs> and, Motivation. and I needed to make more. I know. I needed to make more money. So I decided that you know, I'm going to quit Burger King. I'm going to get a job with uh, Manpower, which is like a temp agency. And I immediately got a job for 9 bucks an hour. Three times the amount of money immediately. So in the work that I was doing was really easy stuff. Like it wasn't programming. It was just like, you know, um, it was like page layout. Mm. Take manuals, take a company's manuals and rewrite those manuals in a newer program, like WordPerfect, you know, like when it came out. And so take it from WordStar, move it to WordPerfect, that kind of thing. And it was really boring work, but it was like, it was nine bucks an hour. Back then, that was really great. I actually could move out and live on my own and, and all that. But I needed a, my actual career, which is games. I needed that to happen. So in September of 87, Apple Fest was happening, which is like a big, you know, Apple computer show for Macs and for Apple IIs, and that was happening in San Francisco. So it was like two hours away from me, and a friend of mine wanted to go, so he drove us there, and I brought a bunch of my discs. And when I got into the place, when I came into the show, there was uh, right straight ahead, you come in the door, and Uptime Magazine was there, and that was a disc magazine that I had sent a bunch of my games to, and a bunch of people were playing my game in the booth. <laughs> wow. Cuz cuz they had published that you know that was like the latest thing that they had published. I, they used to publish something from me almost every month. So that was just the latest game. So like okay, that's great. The publisher of the the guy who owns the company offers me a job and I'm just like, "Thanks. That's awesome. I'll <laughs> definitely think about it. Really cool." And then I went over to the Origin booth. And Origin was like the company that I loved at the time. I loved the Ultima games. I played, you know, finished every one of the Ultimas up until that point, and I was waiting for Ultima Five, and they were making Ultima Five at the time, and there were posters for Ultima Five up on the wall and everything, and uh, and so I went to the booth, and they had a computer there that was running a rewritten Ultima One, and uh, so I popped the disc out and stuck my disc in and rebooted the computer. <laughs> Unbelievable, <laughs> and. 
the marketing, the director of marketing comes over and is like, uh, what, what, what are you doing on our computers? <laughs> and they said, check this out. And she, she looks at the screen. It's like this game that I had just made. Yeah, it was called Lethal Labyrinth. And she's like, wow, I haven't seen an Apple II with colors like that before. And I said, I know, it's double res. It's really hard to program, but I can program in double res and make games and all that stuff. I, I really want to work at Origin. And she's like, okay, yeah, can I get your information? So I gave her my info and I got her card, which was actually the key part was getting her card. And, uh, and then I put that Ultima Disk one, you know, back in and rebooted it. But I got my contact with Origin. And when I got back, you know, from San Francisco, then I was basically calling twice a week, three times a week until finally they had a project that may open up, which is a, a project that would port, someone would port an Apple II game to the Commodore 64. I've never programmed a Commodore 64, but, you know, that wasn't going to stop me from getting this job. So <laughs> <laughs> I went out and I bought a book called Mapping the Commodore 64. I learned it in the weekend. And, uh, and, and I had a phone interview, and that was with three programmers. And, and they called me back, like, the next week and said that they chose me. And I find out that it was I, I was one of five programmers that they interviewed, and all the other four were 100% Commodore 64 programmers. And I was the Apple II programmer. Wow. That's why <laughs> so, you shoot your shot. I guess. <laughs> you know, and I told them, oh, yeah, the Commodore 64 is just like the Apple II, except for these things, because I learned everything about it over the weekend. So they felt like this person actually can talk about both systems completely versus, you know, the Commodore programmers who know the Commodore, but not really the Apple II. So they flew me out to New Hampshire, which was their main office. And then I had an interview with nine programmers. It was great. <laughs> it was really great. I had so much fun in that meeting, and they hired me, and uh, that was in 1987. So that's when I got in the industry. That is an awesome story. For folks that are going to be listening to this that may have been living under a rock, why don't you just, how does it ultimately form and get off the ground initially? After Origin, I quit and started a game company called Inside Out Software. Did that for nine months, quit that company, and in between there, and Softdisk, I started another company called Ideas from the Deep and made some games there real quickly and, and then started at Softdisk in March of 1989. While at Softdisk, that's where I met Tom Hall and I met Adrian Carmack. And I worked at Softdisk for about a year and a few months before I finally was just like, I need to make games because I wasn't making games. There. I was learning everything about the PC, but not making new games, like big games that I wanted to make. So I told the president of the company I really need to make games and, and that I was planning on, you know, going over to LucasArts because they were making some really cool stuff at the time. And, and he basically said, no, 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 we'll do games. So he started up a new product called Gamer's Edge. That was my new my new game project. And I, and I, and I asked, I needed a team. I needed a programmer and an artist and someone to manage the interface between our department and across the street, which is all the, you know, the admin. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to code. <laughs> so I got a friend of mine from the Apple II department to come over and he could be the manager guy. And then I found Adrian Carmack, who is a, an artist. He was just an intern making five bucks an hour, uh, just basically learning how to turn on a computer and click dots on the screen. He barely knew anything about art uh, on a computer, but, he, but off of the computer, his art was awesome. And uh, Tom Hall was in the Apple II department. He was a programmer, and he was, you know, he was really funny, and he's a really good programmer. And then I needed, a, I needed, a, but I didn't, I didn't pick Tom to be in in uh, in the game department because they needed him in the Apple II department. So I needed another coder. And I made so many games back then that even though I was working at when I was at work, I was making you know stuff. I was making games or I was making whatever. At night, I would make games on my own. And I would sell those games back to Softdisk because if I'm working in the PC department, they still need stuff in the Apple II department. So I'll make Apple II stuff at home, sell it to Softdisk, and it gets published. So when I was looking for another programmer at that exact time, um, one of my games called Substalker was published on one of their discs. And alongside it was a game called Tennis by a person named John Carmack. And I saw the tennis game that he'd written, and I was just really impressed with it because it was, it, you know, you can, you can see technique and you can see code through what you see on the screen, and it was really impressive. So I, I asked him, what about this John Carmack guy? That was really impressive for a tennis game. 
And they said, forget it. We tried hiring him twice. He's already turned us down twice. And, and I said, tell him this is to make games all day and only games. Um, and, uh, and they said, okay. So they contacted him and he said, oh, he'll come down for an interview. And I was like, hell yeah. So he came down from Kansas City and we had an interview um, at an Italian restaurant. And I brought my, my friend Lane over because he was a, an expert on the, the Mac in 68,000 assembly and on the Apple II um, in 6502 assembly. And then I was, you know, Commodore, Apple, and PC programmer all in assembly on all, on, on all those systems. So we had like two of us that knew most of the computers that were out. All bases covered, <laughs> Complete, basically, yeah. Completely, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he, came, when he came in, he was really new to the PC as well. Um, or he was new to the PC. So when we met, it was just like amazing because we knew so much stuff. And, and this was like for him a place where he can actually learn because he basically, you know, like he didn't, didn't know any programmers around him just like me. I, you know, before I got a job at, at Soft or at, at Origin, I'd never met another programmer. It was really rare back in, the, in those days to see another programmer. So for him, it was like, this is going to be it, you know, going to be around people that know stuff that he doesn't know and he's going to work on games which are really fun and he was making games in his spare time anyway as a freelancer so he accepted the job and moved down and we started making we had to make a game we had we both had to make a game in one month so we had to make two games in one month so we did we were almost living at the office to do it but it was really great to see his dedication and then the second month um when we finished those two games in that one month we gave that away as a as a like a, a demo disc to show people what what this gamer's edge thing could do. Then we made a game together called Slordax, and it was only one, you know, a couple of weeks before he made the first big technical breakthrough, and uh, and it was just like wow, blew me away. So yeah, and when he made the big technical breakthrough, it was like that was it. Software started as soon as I saw that thing happen. <laughs> Uh, John, you often refer to those years as turbo mode, you know, 28 games, five years, got a relatively small team. So when you look back in retrospect, do you recall those times fondly? Was it was it burnt out? What's your feeling on it? It was super fun. There was mm. zero. There was no burnout. It was amazing. <laughs> good, good. I, that's what I was hoping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. There was no burnout. The only reason why we spent so many hours doing it is because we loved it and it was super fun. Awesome. So, uh. With Doom specifically, what what would you say is was the most challenging aspect of getting it off the ground? Jeez, uh, I'd say um, we were really excited starting Doom because we knew we could make that game. You know, we had a bullet point list of the things that we were going to put into it. We knew we could make those things happen, and it was all just like starting to make it make it happen. We'd made so many games at that time before starting it. I had made and published dozens of games. And so did so did Tom. Like we had ten years of experience. So you know, starting starting Doom was like our fifth first person shooter out of the tons of games that we'd already made. Like we made thirteen games in nineteen ninety one, and this is the beginning of ninety three. We made a lot of stuff. So when we started Doom, it was like, all right, we don't have a deadline. We're going to make the greatest game that we can imagine playing. Let's go. And so immediately, you know, John is starting to come, you know, starting to define the world and how he's going to draw the world. And I am, you know, at the same time, I know that it's made up of line segments and these things called sectors. And so I start writing the level editor to allow Tom and I to make the levels in the game that the player is going to be in. So I'm writing that stuff. Tom is doing all of this design work, figuring out you know, um, where, who you are, where you are, what's going on, what do you do, what are the weapons, what are the enemies, you know, all of that stuff. He's figuring all that stuff out. And, uh, and then the artists are just starting to draw. They're starting to draw any of the ideas that we had at the very beginning. They're starting to figure out how to make monsters and weapons and stuff because we're like, we're innovating in so many ways, we, you know, areas. Before Doom, it was like, if you're going to make a character, let's say, in, in, uh, for Wolfenstein 3D, if you're going to draw an officer in Wolfenstein 3D, we're in Deluxe Paint 2 and we're clicking dots and we're like drawing those characters a dot at a time until a whole character is drawn and then we have to rotate them. So you have to redraw, click, 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 and do it by hand. And, um, and so with Doom, we're like, let's do something really new. Let's build models and scan them with a video camera and edit those scans 
And then we can make a lot of them really fast and rotate them and everything just using a video camera. It's called rotoscoping. We were doing that. And since we had a video camera, we're like, well, let's just scan the weapons too. hold the gun up to the camera, you know, right in the front of the lens and take a picture and edit that. So we started doing a lot of really cool stuff, you know, um, using the, the next step computers for the first time to do game dev as well. So we were not programming in DOS anymore. We're programming in a, a real workstation environment with an operating system that was incredible. It still is because now it's Mac OS. So we were, were doing cross development. So we're like making the game on next step and just running it on a DOS PC. And uh, just all of these brand new things we're doing at the same time. And just, it was just making it and barely, you know, getting some stumbling blocks like the screen rendering uh, the world it was a little too slow because of some some of the of the data structures that John was had decided to use early on was not conducive to making the um, the calculations that figure out what should be drawn on the screen it could get caught up in some of the data structures because of the way that I was making some of the levels so he had to figure out another way of of ordering that stuff and that's where the binary space partition uh, technology came from, which games had used for decades after that. So how long after Doom's release did you guys realize that you had just changed things? Um, well, we knew before we started making it. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Because we, we, put, we, we put out a press release in the early days of January saying that this next game, Doom, was going to be the most you know important, most innovative game in the world. <laughs> you called your shot like Babe Ruth. <laughs> I know, and it was before we started actually coding it. We like put out a press release telling everybody we expect worldwide productivity to slow to a halt and all this kind of stuff. It was so funny that we did that, but you know, we had to have that bullet point list completed. You know, like multiplayer games, an yeah. open game where people can mod it and change the game to be whatever they want it to be. All of that stuff, you know, in addition to just like making a really really fun game. But yeah, we worked really hard to do that. So like all groundbreaking games or movies doom spawned a bunch of clones do you have a favorite one that you enjoyed more than the others you know i i designed heretic and you know that game was developed with raven you know i i, I tried for years to get them to work with us and finally they did hexen was great but those are like my games because they designed this and had those yeah, that doesn't count <laughs> um outside outside of that dark horses was incredible Outlaws was incredible, and Duke Nukem 3D was amazing. Those three games are like the big standouts for me. I don't know, Love Blood, you know, and some of the other Doom-like games that were out there, but really those three were like the high marks. You know, I loved Jedi Knight, you know, but that's kind of getting into the Quake world. Mm, yeah. Um, but but really, like Dark Forces was huge. I loved it, and Outlaws was just amazing i loved outlaws so much but yeah duke was just massive duke nukem was massive i played duke i played duke a lot i listened to duke nukem music for years every day like <laughs> i played the whole soundtrack from the game and the plutonium pack i just had it in a, in a playlist that would play every day on repeat for years just <laughs> some of my favorite music <laughs> that's awesome uh, how much did your approach to making new maps change between those early ed days and when you made the sigil map pretty you know when i was designing when i was starting to design sigil i had to make a decision you know how am i going to go about making these levels am i going to change my style to reflect the latest ways that people are mapping or am i going to continue the style as if it never you know like if it was it was 1995 again and I decided to go back to that because that kind of gameplay isn't out there much anymore. You know, people have deviated from that style, especially in full commercial games. But even in the modding community, they've kind of deviated from that style. So I wanted to bring it back and I wanted to try and do any kind of slight design innovation with, the, with what was already made in Doom without using any like source port you know, scripting or anything that wasn't part of the original game. So I came up with some pretty cool ideas and that I totally decided Sigil needs to feel like you just got done playing the Ultimate Doom and you're playing the next episode and it has a little step up in design. So I got a lot of feedback from players going like, oh my God, I haven't played anything like this in so long. This is like playing the original Doom again, you know, because <laughs> people have deviated so far away from that in their mods. So I decided that I was going to use the same kind of level uh, construction and flow 
and visual, you know, cues and all the things I used, and, you know, audio cues too, but use all of that stuff in the design of Sigil so people felt like they were playing the original Doom again. So speaking of modding, Doom is one of those games that pretty much kind of introduced modding or allowed uh, fans to mod. Are you aware of some of the... There's a gentleman out there, I'm sorry I forget his name, but he has modded a a Super Nintendo version of Doom that he updates to this day. It's just it's crazy. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is just uh, some fan questions I have here. Uh, How would you bring arena shooters into the forefront in 2023? You would have to follow the format. You know, you'd have to follow the format of what made arena shooters like Quake 3, you know, so fun to play. If you were going to do that, you know, you would kind of go back to what was fun. If anyone's saying that they want to revive something like an arena shooters because they had fun playing it. And that means that the things that made those arena shooters fun needs to be in the arena shooter, you know. So I'd say stick to the formula, whatever, you know, whatever game someone's going to make that's going to have that in it stick to the formula that made arena shooters really fun well said how much programming time did you have to spend on the tuning the air control on daikatana that was you know we spent a lot of time um you know and i wanted more air control in that game than i'd seen in any other game um just because it's so much fun in in, uh, in deathmatch you know so yeah daikatana has more air control than anything that i've played <laughs> um but it's really really fun and uh you know, we did release a, um, a multiplayer, you know, we released basically a deathmatch demo a year before we launched the game. So people got to see, you know, what our air control was like, what our weapons were like, what the movement model felt like. And, um, you know, it was still using Quake engines, Quake 2, you know, the Quake 2 engine when we released that demo. So it felt really good, you know, and uh, I think that was probably one of the most successful parts of, of Daikatana's, you know, development cycle was us releasing that multiplayer demo in i think it was march 99 or february 99 so john what's the best advice you've received in your programming career and who gave it to you wow programming was it use variables (laughs) yeah probably because i never got you know it's really hard to find other people that that were coders that 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 were really good i'd say the best the best advice that i have you know that's a great question but the best advice i think is is like I think I've created the advice which which um, that I actually give to other people and it's something that just grew out of the way that you have to program the way that I had to program things back then ended up in the kind of a rule where you only write so much code before you start testing it meaning not that much code just write a little bit of code and test to make sure that it works the longer that you're writing code and not running it the worse your bugs can get. So short iteration on your programming means that you are nailing bugs, fixing them super fast, and they don't get really complex. It'll get very complex. If you've been programming for half an hour and they decide to run your code, you're in for a while of debugging versus write for five minutes and run it. You know, another five minutes, run it. Just make sure that you're constantly testing your stuff because you will nail things much faster because you've only typed so much code since the last time you ran it. The problem is only in just those lines that you wrote. And it makes debugging so much easier when you're focused on a smaller region of where things can go wrong. Right, and I feel like you can apply that to a lot more things than just coding. Especially yeah, if you're a painter. basically everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty much everything. Just do a little bit before you test, you know, no matter what it is. And you will be able to make sure your stuff is... It's almost like... If you want to learn something difficult like calculus, if you don't know calculus and you want to make the, the, the jump from trig to calculus, you need small steps to, for, for full understanding. You can't have these steps of, of knowledge where it's like, well, I don't understand what they just showed me. I understood this, but I don't understand that thing. If there's five more steps in between that take you from here to here, then it makes sense. You know, So like always small steps um, to, to learn more effectively. Well said. And uh, John, this is another question I just like to ask everyone because you never know. I, sometimes I get a 30-minute <laughs> answer to this. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> have, you, have you ever had a, an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Um, no. Nope. 
but I'm always looking for that. Me too. <laughs> yeah, it's like I want to believe. I want to see something that makes me think that ghosts are real or whatever. I would love to. You know, I say it, it, in Ireland we went to um, like Europe's most haunted castle. Lep, it's called Lep Castle, and it was in in uh, County Offaly, and it's been on shows. You know, the the most haunted you know whatever in Europe yeah. shows ghost hunters that kind of stuff and we we luckily found a way to stay in this one castle and i'm just like i can't wait for anything supernatural to happen nothing <sighs> and it's like but with but the uh the guy who owned the castle was telling us all kinds of stuff like oh yeah this happens all the time you know this is the castle where if you saw the game of thrones it's the um, where the inspiration for the red wedding scene came oh. from because it actually happened in the top of this castle. Okay, um, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, but I'd love to see anything that's a ghost, you know. But I haven't. But as soon as I do, that'll be cool, you <laughs> awesome. know. But I'm always, so I'm not afraid of ghosts. I can't wait to see one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or an alien. <laughs> anything that's not normal stuff that you, everybody knows exists. Right. Uh, so, John, just to put a bow on this, what's on the horizon for you? What can people expect coming down the pipeline from you? Um, let's see. I'm working on Sigil 2, so that's coming out at the end of the year for Doom's 30th, and I'm working on a shooter right now. So I'm working, working on uh, a new FPS with a you know good-sized team, and I'm using Unreal 5 for it. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, John, <laughs> just before I let you go, could you just give me a quick, you know, just look at the camera. This is John Romero, yeah. and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. This is John Romero, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Awesome, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you and Brenda for, you know, working with me here. I appreciate it. I've had a great time talking with you, man. Great. Thanks. Same here. Awesome. There's actually a question I could tell. I'm like, whoa, I don't think I've ever heard anybody ask him that question, which was, the best coding advice that he yeah. ever, I don't think I don't think he's ever been asked that question. You gotta why not yeah, ask the master, you know? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> never had coding coding advice from anybody, so that was great. <laughs> well thank you guys. I'll send you guys a link to this once I get it edited and posted and all that good stuff. All right. All right. Yeah, thanks great. a lot. All right, have a great rest of your day. All right. Take all right, care, you too. Bye. Bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with John. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.